Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. I'm here right now with Reverend Paul Abernathy, Father Paul, who's the chief executive of the Neighborhood Resilience Corporation in the Hill District in Pittsburgh. So, Father Paul, tell us a little bit about what you do at the Neighborhood Resilience Corporation and and who you are. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Uh, The Neighborhood Resilience Project, we grew out of uh, about nine years of, of ministry here in the inner city of Pittsburgh, which we were doing a lot of things like basic needs, emergency relief for families. But we learned very quickly that the greatest challenge that we were facing in the community was trauma, the immense amounts of trauma in our community. A lot of times we learned that that when we start giving people a can of food, they'd end up talking about a time where they saw their, uh, where they lost a son to gun violence, or we gave them a sweater, they were talking about a time they were raped. People would talk about abuse, people would talk about eviction. We began to realize that these challenges, this trauma was so widespread in our community that from our perspective, trauma became the foundation for the community's worldview. And so from that point of view, we began to uh, enter a conversation with researchers and academicians from local universities to help us understand what we, how we might go about addressing community trauma. And from that work and from those partnerships emerged this uh, framework we refer to as now trauma-informed community development. For us in the Neighborhood Resilience Project, What the mission is, is the transformation of trauma-affected communities to resilient, healing, and healthy communities. And trauma-informed community development is the framework by which we advance that mission. We have different program areas where uh, where we're looking to to address community support, uh, health and well-being, and leadership development in various ways that range from providing basic needs to families that face food insecurity to free health center, trauma response team for gun violence, and various trainings to help prepare community members to address whatever challenges that they face. So we keep awfully, uh, we keep awfully busy, and at this time our work goes not only across our county, but we've entered into partnership with other, uh, with other groups around the nation as well in helping mentor them and coach them and train them in trauma-informed community development. All right. So things have really built up since the last time I was there, and I and I see you're in you're in new a new space. Indeed, yes. So we have a, we have a brand new facility. Actually, just only been here since uh, we purchased it in December and began moving in, in in January. So we're we're nearly fully moved in, but we have actually some uh, more settling in to do. And in the midst of the crisis, it's given us a great opportunity to to serve as a you know, really as a base of operations for basic needs, health care, um, and even combating the disease in our community at this time. So it's really good to be in this new facility. And you're a priest in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and your wife is actually a clinician who's, who's I think, running your clinic, right? Yeah, well, my wife, is a, she's a clinic administrator, so she's not a clinician, but she, but, she runs, but she runs the health center. That's what she's done. And she, of course, uh, her work was to launch and run the free, the free health center, uh, which is a very, very daunting task. But she's done an incredible job in uh, providing access to health care for especially those who have no 
health insurance, those who are uninsured and underinsured, who can't, who have no other option for medical care, um, and not only being seen here at the clinic, but also things like the medication that they need or the surgeries and procedures that they need, the lab work that they need, which the health center provides for them at uh, absolutely no cost. Now more than ever, it's a very critical service. And in the midst of uh, COVID-19, we've uh, transferred uh, all of our health care to telemedicine. So uh, all of our docs continuing to see patients in a telemedicine platform. And it's not only about addressing, you know, what are the new illnesses that, that pop up. I know we're, we're all desperately trying to address COVID-19, but it's also about making sure that those people who were already sick and who continue to need medical care still get the medical care that they need. If people needed insulin two months ago, they will still need it this month. And so it's very important that we don't lose sight of uh, continuing to care people who are already sick. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to ask you about. How, how have you been adapting? How do you keep track? How do you keep up with the people who I assume would, you know, you would have been able to walk down the street and check on how they're doing. They would have been stopping in to your place. Maybe some of the people in your community don't have ready access to the internet. What, what are you doing to stay in touch? Well, in our work with the Neighbor Resilience Project, we, we've learned uh, over the years how important it is to, uh, to build resilience among community members who can essentially be the eyes and ears of the ministry in the community. Uh, our work with uh, gun violence, we've been working in the city of Pittsburgh, in Allegheny County, actually, with uh, the, the, the Pittsburgh Police, the Allegheny County Health Department, and various other uh, agencies and entities across the county to address gun violence from a public health perspective over the recent years. And what that's really done is exposed us to an epidemiological framework. That's what a public health approach to gun violence is. It really takes an epidemiological framework looking at gun violence as a disease. And for that reason, it's given some, not expertise, but some familiarity with what, what stopping, fighting, preventing disease actually does look like. And so for that reason, we've, we've taken what little knowledge we've done, uh, we, we've received uh, as in, our, uh, in our work to address gun violence, and we've really adapted it to the current conditions. And we've, and we've actually launched an initiative to create a core of what we call community health deputies. And these community health deputies are, com are community members who we've, we're training in an epidemiological framework to combat the spread of COVID-19, to uh, check and assess the needs of people, especially food and medicine, and finally to, to uh, assess and support the mental health needs of the community. As we all know, people are facing a great deal of anxiety. Uh, we're trying to train them as many as we can via uh, webinar um, and some, you know, who are close to us are able, we're able to, you know, train in, in person, keeping up with the social distancing. But this has really provided a, a way to really advance a pretty significant uh, network through the community where we're able to stay in touch with the community. We're conducting telephonic wellness checks in the community, especially those community members that are age 60 and over have pre-existing health conditions that are very vulnerable to this and using it as an opportunity to continue those relationships and find what, we, what these community members need so that we can actually get these community members that which they need in the midst of the crisis. In addition to that, we really are doing as much as we can to help with food insecurity. I mean, as, as I know you know, Ryan, we've had rounds of layoffs uh, like everywhere else. And so the need has increased. And so here we're able to distribute 
food. Uh, not only not only people were coming here, but we're trying to get food to the people who are unable to come and pick the food up. But but what we're really committed to doing is addressing you know food insecurity and providing food for the community. And so we've we've begun to do that both with um with canned goods and shelf stable foods as well as with uh, hot meals that we've just started to to serve the community. Uh, a few times every week as well. And this provides an also other opportunity while maintaining social distancing, an opportunity to teach what this disease is really all about and maintain relationships with the community and try to understand what people need in this particular time, what the community needs. So it's, it's a change for sure, but, but, we're, but we're adapting to it as best we can. So one of the things I love about the epidemiological approach that you all are taking to gun violence and to neighborhood community building in particular is that when you say community, you're talking at a very small scale, actually. I mean, I know that your original interventions were basically based around recognizing which which block in this neighborhood is the strongest and which can we kind of like build out from. So, and I understand now that you're, you're trying to, you know, uh, train more and more leaders what is the scale of that? Like, are we still talking the block level? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, up to this point, we've we've had in in the Hill District, we've had uh, full scale interventions with right now with we call them with like blocks or micro communities. Right now, with about five micro communities, and we've begun to really bring them together to uh, begin to build strength and communication among a broader community. These five micro communities in this particular time have served as an incredible foundation as we work to now increase our resilience in this community in the wake of this crisis. In addition to the group in the Hill District, we've trained uh, cohorts from three different areas in the local region. Uh, We've trained a cohort from the north side here in the city of Pittsburgh. We've trained a a, a cohort from uh, from Braddock, Rankin area, and uh, and we've trained some folks from Claritin, the city of Claritin. So along with that work, we're really trying to do whatever we can also to help people in other underserved communities or what we prefer to call trauma-affected communities to help really continue this work, uh, help people understand that if we find the right, uh, you know, the, the right area to begin, just starting with one little block can be the foundation for really beautiful community transformation that results in resilient, healing, and healthy community. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes me think of, you know, all of, I'm a college professor, and all of my students have been sent back from campus, uh, most of them, back, who have families that they can go to. And so when I connect with them now, it's very much like a centralized connecting with each of these individual nodes. But at the same time, I also teach in our family's homeschool co-op, and so when I taught my high school literature class this morning by Zoom and connected with the co-op, I was connecting with multiple nodes that had in themselves little communities. So there are, you know, like three siblings in one, two siblings in another. And it seems to me that one approach to neighborhood development would be this very centralized approach where you are the source of everything good and you need to individually reach all these individuals. But what you're doing instead is you've already created these little pods of community that you can actually kind of count on to help each other at this moment. Is that kind of the idea of how it's supposed to work? Ron, that's exactly the idea. And and that, what I'm, what I'm really uh, most thankful for in all of it is, is that this crisis 
has really brought that to light. It's really incredible to see that, you know, doing the work of helping connect neighbors to one another, doing the work of helping build community on that extremely local level, you know, being neighborly to the people who live really close to you and drawing near to them, not only in uh, physical proximity, but really near in heart. Now we see that that provides the real foundation so that it's not these agencies and institutions. You know, and I think that in this particular time, it becomes so important because, you know, the agencies and institutions, to be quite honest with you, they are seemingly overwhelmed. And so the question becomes, well, how are our people really ready to step up and, and build community and be community to one another now that these institutions and uh, that we all depended on are no longer available. I think one of the great challenges that happens in our communities is that when there's this overemphasis on the need for these institutions that are this, you know, these central institutions that will care for the needs of individuals. And I think what that can do, although we need strong institutions that, that help support people and community, what that can do if executed uh, the wrong way is it can really reduce community resilience. It can really uh, try to undermine the necessity for, for neighborly relations. You know, it, it can try and replace, you know, what is the good old fashioned relational community. And uh, and so what our work really is dedicated to is to is to help really building people up, to help really build up uh, community at that very very local level, to help really uh, reconnect people so that so that the community members themselves can be the resilience that our community needs, uh, not only in times of crisis but truly always. That really reveals a great range in our imagination of what constitutes social distancing. You know, I think part of what, when we think about going back to normal, I think for many of us, going back to normal will actually not change that much because we were already fairly socially distanced from our neighbors. And, you know, what you're describing is you're describing that contrast that in normal times, how socially distanced is a particular neighborhood? How socially distanced is a particular community? And only if in normal times you actually have those those bonds of community are you going to be able to maintain any kind of social cohesion even under conditions of social distancing. So like what are the practical ways that these communities are able to remain in touch with each other and able to help each other under the conditions of social distancing? You know, that's a great question. What, what, probably one of the best examples I've seen is, you know, one of these micro communities, one of these blocks that we've worked with, you know, where they actually are doing, they actually are doing a, a daily uh, roll call and check in with every member in that block and they themselves are doing it. And so they're checking to see if anybody has signs and symptoms. They're checking to see if anybody was even potentially exposed. They're certainly looking at you know, they're certainly looking at, um, you know, what do people, what do really people need? And in, and even if they're neighbors that need groceries, you know, I just received a, a, a text message from, you know, one of the folks on, on one of these blocks who's, who's overseeing this, you know, saying that we, we have people who, who just can't get groceries right now. We got to work to address that. You know, also trying to not only check in with people, but to make sure on a daily basis, everybody that everybody connects with somebody so that they can have some kind of support. I, you know, I, I really appreciate that. I know there are some who, you know, they talk about social distancing, but there's some who really prefer the term physical distancing, meaning that although we can't be physically close to one another, that still we have to we have to maintain that social connection 
productivity. And, and so it's really inspiring to see how committed they are, that, that they are really making it a point to say every single day, we will make sure that every neighbor of ours is checked on, you know, not by an institution or by, you, you know, um, a government agency even, but really by us as, as, as uh, neighbors and that, we are, uh, and that we are really maintaining our commitment to one another. I'll tell you one of the other things that, you know, a really, really great example of this is um, after we finished with uh, intervention with one of these blocks, you know, they, they understood that, uh, you know, they had an opportunity to perhaps support one another. And so they, they started a, what they called a, a good neighbor fund where everybody in the block pitches in money every year and that that particular fund is to be used in the uh, case of any sort of tragedy in the year so that they can help address it as a, you know, as a community, so they can help address it as a block the best way that they can. And, you know, seeing them do these kinds of things like that so that they can really tap into their own strength, so that they can really develop themselves, um, not only personally, but, but understanding that the well-being of the person is very much in the context of community well-being. It's just very, very inspiring to see. And I think that if we, if we continue to foster those, you know, those connections and people are able to see how, you know, maintaining those connections and being that, that community to each other in a time of crisis in which the institutions and government and even healthcare system to some degree were overwhelmed, I think that will really strongly encourage this idea going forward. The, the one thing that we're really trying to, uh, one of the things that we're really trying to teach now is that that um, the world is uh, will undoubtedly be changed by this crisis. Uh, what we have to understand is that uh, change does not have to be bad. And from this, the changed future that no doubt will emerge from this crisis, uh, we can do, we can, there are th- certain ways that we can make sure that that change is actually for the betterment of our community. And I think this is one of those ways that it very clearly could be. And so you're uh, an Eastern Orthodox priest. Can you talk a little bit about the the religious and spiritual dimensions of your work, and um, and how you know this expands your your notion of health? Yeah, for me as a as an Orthodox priest, um, this work is you know informed first and foremost by you know by my own uh, theological experience, and by that I don't so much mean what I've studied as much as as much as what I've learned just. Uh, just in, in praying and, and, and being in the presence of the living God and being around godly people. And, you know, the whole concept of community that we're really working to promote, you know, this in my, this, this in truly my reflection, uh, in, in my experience is a reflection of the gospel of our Lord. The gospel of our Lord, it does provide the way that, that we ought to love one another as, as, as we, as God loved us, that we ought, that we ought to be one with each other as Christ and the Father are one. And so this idea about unity, this, this bond of love that must unite humanity, the, the, the bond of love that was healed, you know, in the, in the, you know, in the book of Genesis, in the Tower of Babel, you know, we are separated by sin. And yet that separation is healed in the moment of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends and everybody hears them speaking in their own tongue. This is, this is the healing of our division as a result of sin. And so when we see the division in our community, we see that people, they don't look at another human being sometimes as, you know, someone that they want to know or that they want to love, but they sometimes people see another human being as somebody as they fear. I think even that's an, a temptation is that, that might especially be prevalent now, where people look at other human beings and they say, could they potentially be carriers of this virus? And, and there's, a, there's an aspect of reality there. And yet we know that, uh, that God said, that, that the Lord says, and, 
and in, in, in the Holy Scriptures that we must not be afraid in these particular times. And that the division that's caused by, uh, that by our own sin has been healed by the Lord Himself. And this is, this, is, uh, this is good news. And this is the good news that has to inform our work. For us, you know, we begin, all, we begin our work with prayer and we, we do the best that we can in remaining prayerful throughout our work. You know, here at our physical location, we make sure that we have prayer services every single day. And in addition to that, we're praying for the people that we serve. And that the, the groups that emerge from our work, they also become these micro communities that, that, that in many ways define themselves by prayer. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, one group that, uh, that in order to build relations with one another, they decided to, to, to meet at a different house every week for no other reason than just to pray with one another. And this becomes a, a way in which they can foster their bond, understanding that, that the best way that we can, that we can increase our, our relations with one another is to do so with the Lord present in our midst. And so for us, it's, it's been very important. The final thing really that I'll say about it that I think uh, is, is incredibly uh, crucial is that this kind of work is so incredibly difficult. Uh, if we're really talking about, you know, community transformation from trauma-affected community to resilient healing and healthy community, if we're really talking about gun violence and trying to stop gun violence, if we're really talking about uh, how we're going to battle, you know, COVID-19 and, and we have people that are putting themselves at, at risk just so they could feed somebody who's hungry or somebody who's homeless, if they're talking about people who would, who would make their own sacrifices to, you know, check on their neighbors and be with their neighbors in a time of crisis, I think it's very important to understand that it is really, it is really by faith that we have to, that we have to walk this walk because it's too much. It's too difficult to do without the grace of God. The temptation to, the temptation to quit is too great. The temptation to seek personal benefit is too great. We understand that um, that uh, we are citizens not of this world, and we do not seek prize in this world. We know that very often to do <clears throat> this kind of work, it is it is thankless work. If we are to think about, you know, what kind of rewards do people get in this life? And yet we we trust in the words of our Lord, you know, who teaches us that that yes, we are we must that teaches us that we must be citizens of the kingdom, not of this world. That it's not about what happens here, but it is it is the kingdom of God and the world to come. And not to be dependent upon, you know, humans who so often fail us and, and cause us to stumble, but really to be solely dependent upon God and be strengthened by His grace. This is a, this is a, this is the foundation of our work here. And were it not, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that we'd be unable to do this, especially with a sense of peace, joy, and love that, uh, that we are called to do this work with. The work you're engaged in is is very personal. It's very personal work. So I'm wondering, are there any particular exemplars of this kind of personal work that that you look to and that that you try to commend to others and model yourself your own work on? You know, for me, it's what's really interesting. I think is uh, over the years, I've I've had the benefit, the the privilege of you know being exposed to people who uh, you know were were very radical in their faith. And certainly history is filled with examples of uh, people who have done this work from very, very radical perspectives from the early church. Certainly, I think you can look at the Acts of the Apostles and you can see plenty of examples of radical witness, you know, among the people and ministering to the people. And that that's uh, that's some, an inf- you know, that's an influence I carry in my heart. You can go a few centuries later and look at 
saints like St. John Chrysostom, um, St. Basil the Great, even St. Nicholas uh, of Myra Lycia, the, these, these mighty men and women of God who had done this holy work, and, and the saints, who the righteous ones of God who do this holy work in all the ages. In my own lifetime, I've been very, very uh, blessed to be exposed to you know, incredible Christians who were, uh, again, radically committed to doing this work you know, in the United States and beyond. You know, I had a wonderful mentor. I had some wonderful mentors, especially when I was at, at college at Wheeling Jesuit University. I had some wonderful mentors there who really challenged me to, to think about my Christian faith and what it meant for the life that I led and really the, the, the way in which we engaged the world as, we, as the Lord commands us to go forth. And seeing people who not only encouraged me, but they themselves have been living that radical witness you know, was very inspiring to me. And so I've learned, you know, I've been very, very blessed um, with, uh, you know, certainly the saints from the ancient days of the church to, you know, modern, uh, modern wonderful examples of this in my own life. And uh, the last thing I, uh, I just would say is I think in my own immediate family, you know, I was very, very blessed to live in a, uh, live in a, a, a Christian home where, uh, you know, my mother, single mother, has really, she always was an extraordinary witness of the Christian faith. And, you know, she's even still now a social worker. And um, she uh, she told me very recently that uh, she is, um, you know, she's going out, she's doing she's doing wellness checks on senior citizens that are very vulnerable to this. Uh, and she, of course, is uh, vulnerable in her own way. But she, there are some who won't go right now, but but she's going because she really believes that uh, that this is a ministry, that this is a work, that this is what God has commanded her to do, even if it puts her at, uh, at risk for contracting the illness. And, you know, to be raised in a home like that is just, uh, it's just incredibly powerful. So I've been very blessed with, uh, with many wonderful examples in my life. What can people in the Pittsburgh community, people watching this, if they want to support the work that you're doing there, how can they do that? Yeah, thank you. So there are, there are a couple of different ways. Number one, we certainly need uh, food. There's, um, you know, we're, we, we are preparing to be in this situation for a little while. We, we pray that it ends uh, sooner rather than later, but we are preparing to be in this situation for a little while. So we are in need of food as the rounds of layoffs have continued. So donating food is a very, very important way to help. Another thing is we're, we're, uh, we're recruiting volunteers who are willing to be trained as community health deputies because this is not work only that we're doing in the Hill District, but we're doing it you know, across the county, in particular in medically underserved communities. So the more community health deputies we're able to train, the more we can uh, hopefully uh, save some lives in, in our most at-risk communities. Thirdly, we, we, we could use some people, uh, we're recruiting people to help us conduct these telephonic wellness checks. People who would be willing to make phone calls and, and, uh, and check on people in the area who might be very vulnerable to this illness and to see how they're doing, to provide the, just let them know that they're not in this alone, to see if there's any particular needs that they have. So those are ways that, that people really could, uh, that people really could, could help. And last but certainly not least, if, if somebody really felt comfortable being physically present, um, there is also the opportunity to serve hot meals, especially to the, those days where we're serving hot meals to the community. And we make sure that we, we have the, the protocols that help us be as safe as we can with all of this for sure. 
but just the need to staff those positions as well. So those are the, the uh, it, certainly people can go to our website, neighborhoodresilience.org, and we'll try to keep the latest information there, as well as on our Facebook page, um, Neighborhood Resilience Project, and, uh, and other social media. So be sure to stay tuned. Great. We'll, we'll put links to those in our show notes. And so uh, I wanted to, I've been asking everybody I've been talking to, what are the best uh, things you've been reading or watching or listening to during this time that you'd recommend to others? You know, it's interesting because for us, you know, this is also the season of Great Lent. So, so the spiritual readings are trying to keep in, in, in line with, uh, with the season of Great Lent. But, uh, but one thing that I, you know, one thing that I might recommend uh, that, that's a really wonderful uh, book to read that's not a very difficult read, but it's a book called Way of the Pilgrim. And uh, Way of the Pilgrim is a, is a book about, uh, uh, you know, a, a simple Russian man who's traveling across uh, Russia and has only two things, the Bible and the Philokalia, which is a collection of spiritual writings. And it's a very wonderful introduction to uh, what it means to just to lead a, a very, very simple life in which we're dedicated to uh, praying without ceasing. And I think that's especially relevant now because we find ourselves, um, many of us, having almost too much time at home. And so uh, this idea about uh, prayer and solitude and the role that it can play in, in giving us grace and strength at this time, you know, is very, very beautiful. I very recently heard a nun, you know, say I've been social distancing for 20 years. And, uh, and so there's a lot to be, I think, learned from those uh, men and women of prayer who who have really been dedicated to this inner spiritual life. And so that's one thing I might recommend. And, and, and for me, certainly the scriptures and, uh, and, you know, spiritual writings from the Philokalia have been, you know, especially meaningful to me in this particular time of crisis. Great. Thank you. Well, Father Paul Apernathy, thank you for taking the time. I know you've got a lot going on there and really send you prayers and, and blessings on the good work that you're doing. Thank you, Ryan, and thank you so much for taking the time, and may God bless and strengthen you and keep you and your family safe and healthy. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's Beatrice Institute, all one word, Org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.